Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel, and today we'll be talking to Sandra Mendiola-Garcia about her recent book, Street Democracy, Vendors, Violence, and Public Space in Late 20th Century Mexico. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Sure, we're happy to have you. Sandra, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Certainly. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Mexico, and uh, then after my BA, I moved to Canada to do my MA, and then I got my PhD in Latin American history at Rutgers University, and I am currently a professor of Latin American history, Mexican history at the University of North Texas in Denton. And uh, yes, I love teaching and I am very uh, lucky that a lot of my students are Mexicans or Mexican-Americans. So it is really a great experience to be teaching to to these students. Wonderful. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to this particular project? Yes. So um, when I was doing my um, graduate school, my PhD, I really wanted to write a history about uh, business women, small size business women, uh, because I always was intrigued about women in Mexico really making a living and being able to um, you know, feed children and despite all the economic crisis in Mexico, uh, so I started uh, researching at the municipal archive, at the city archive of the city of Puebla, and uh, looking through records about women and businesses. And I found really not too much, do- not too many documents about it. But what I found were all these records about market women, my women who had stalls in markets, in public markets. And there were not one or two, there were hundreds of them. And so I became very intrigued by by these women, by these market vendors. Uh, interestingly enough, as I was doing the research there in Puebla, um, the archive, the municipal archive, is right in downtown, uh, the municipal palace, right in the heart of, of the city. And uh, usually when there are marches, or political events, a lot of these events take in downtown. So as I was researching about market women, I was listening outside the protest of a group of street vendors that had been very active in uh, in Puebla's politics. So I started thinking about street vendors and women. And uh, so that's how the, the uh, book came out, right? The idea of, uh, well, at that point, the dissertation came out about kind of bringing together the lives of these women, which later also became a book about men and women vendors uh, and their political activities. Wonderful. That's such a fascinating story about how you came to this topic. Um, So your book is set in late 20th century Puebla, and I wondered um, if to begin you could tell us a little bit about Puebla in that time period um, and the place of street vendors in the city in that era. Yes. Okay. So Puebla is Mexico's fourth largest city. Um, a lot of the history that is written, has written about Mexico usually tends to focus on Mexico City or places like Oaxaca or cities in the Yucatan Peninsula, right? um, which attract a lot of attention. Uh, there are crews, um, but Puebla, you know, Puebla is a very important city, the most important, important city in the colonial period after Mexico City, uh, yet, you know, hasn't received too, too much attention uh, from historians. And, um, well, in the 1970s, uh, Puebla was a, a city that was uh, experiencing a re-emergence of uh, industrialization, right? Puebla had been known as a textile center since the colonial period, 
Well, by the 1960s, mid-1960s, a number of companies had established in Puebla, such as Volkswagen, the German automaker, uh, Insa, which is a steel maker. Um, so uh, there, there was this new economic boom in, in Puebla. Huh? Um, and one of the things that happens in, in this kind of situations is that the informal economy also takes place at the same time as industrialization, right? At least in uh, developing countries. So, uh, and of course, because a lot of people are migrating from rural areas to the cities, uh, expecting to get jobs, etc. So, uh, obviously, not everybody can get jobs in in, in the form in, in the formal sector in, in industries or factories. Uh, so, we we see this um, wave of migrants from the countryside to Puebla in the 1960s and the 1970s. Now, Puebla is also known to be a very conservative city, a city that uh, is very religious, um, a lot of the most conservative Catholic um, uh, hierarchs, right, are in Puebla. Um, And at the same time, the university, the, the city, I'm sorry, um, housed at that period the, the university, um, the Autonomous University of Puebla, La Universidad Autónoma de Puebla, which was also going through a, an enormous change uh, during the 1960s, 70s, right, in which the university was becoming much more radical, less conservative, right? um, many students from many social backgrounds, especially people from poor social backgrounds uh, were entering the university. Uh, so I would characterize Puebla in the 1960s and 70s as a, as a very as a city that was going through a lot of changes. And in this sense, right, street vendors um, well, are also on the rise, right, because all of these economic opportunities and um, uh, the the town the, the cities the cities the cities streets in downtown were uh, quite active right and so in this in the during these decades most of the street vendors were actually selling their wares in downtown streets at the heart of the city especially surrounding two very important markets that were at the center of the city. Could you tell us a little bit more about who these vendors are, you know, their background, where they're coming from? Yes. So um, in the book I cover from the 1970s to the mid-1990s. So during this period of time, the characteristics of vendors change. um, But towards the beginning of the period that I studied in the 1970s, a lot of these folks, um, as I mentioned, were migrants from small towns in the state of Puebla, um, but also people coming from the state of Oaxaca, uh, people coming from Tlaxcala, uh, some people coming from the countryside in Veracruz. So pretty much uh, uh, rural migrants coming from neighboring um, states um, that surround Puebla. now, these street vendors were uh, also born in Puebla, in the city of Puebla. Uh, so it was kind of an eclectic group. A lot of these folks are also the children of market vendors, people who had stalls in markets. Um, now, in terms of gender, half or more, um, more than 50% of the street vending population were women um, and um, also children uh, as young as 14, 13 years old who already had their stalls. Although photographic evidence tells us that that there were even younger children working on the streets selling wares with their parents. So it was a a very eclectic uh, group of my elf. Street vendors. Um, and could you tell us too about sort of what draws people to this work, vending on the street? What are, I mean, some of the 
the appealing parts of this very difficult work? Yes. So, I mean, as you know, and people who have visited Mexico, um, street vending is omnipresent, right? Everywhere you go, there are street vendors. And part of the reason why is because uh, entry costs are low. Um, Pretty much anybody can uh, start selling wares on the streets. Uh, not necessarily in downtown streets, but uh, on every street in neighborhoods or selling wares in hospitals or outside of schools. Uh, vendors that you don't necessarily see, right? But that they are doing, they are vending, selling stuff, right? Home to home, uh, knocking on doors, um, I mentioned in offices. Uh, selling food, right? Selling tortas in public um, administrative offices, and again, right? Is that uh, uh, an easy uh, way of not having great amounts of capital to invest? Anybody can basically start from very little and be able to to sell, right? So that that is part of the reason, right? Low entry costs. Now, in the case of women, uh, street vending also allowed women to bring their children to work, right? In the absence of affordable childcare, in the absence of having family members who could potentially take care of children, um, this kind of work allows people to bring their children along them, along, um, along, and uh, also teach these children the um, the trade. Right, or use these children to sell as well. And so that's another factor that makes street vending so appealing. And of course, in Mexico, where, you know, um, economic crises are a uh, constant, right, and surviving economically is so difficult in the absence of jobs, well, there are really no other chances, no other opportunities, uh, even if working on the street uh, is not easy um, in terms of, you know, being uh, harassed by police officers or by um, uh, just people or even the danger of being on the streets and being hit by cars or by buses, trucks. Um, well, there is no other way, right? There's that's kind of the only the, the only way in which people can can make a living. Thank you. That really um, tells us a lot about the complexity of informality. So, in your book, you talk about how these street vendors uh, form a union. But before um, we talk about that very um, fascinating uh, story, could you tell us a little bit about? Um, the history of unions uh, in 20th century Mexico and why uh, it's so important to look at independent unions like the one that you study? Yeah, so um, unions in Mexico, whether they are um, unions of workers, industrial workers or peasant unions, uh, for the most part, um, especially in the second half of the 20th century, uh, most unions were co-opted by the ruling party, the um, institution, Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional. Um, and uh, these unions, as part of their co-optation, usually had leaders who had to agree with the party, with employers, and on many occasions didn't work for the best interest of the rank-and-file members. Not always, but uh, that was, for the most part, generally speaking. Um, Some of uh, your listeners know uh, these uh, kind of unions were known as chattel unions, right? Unions that were corrupted, um, who worked on on behalf of employers. Uh, or in this case, in, on behalf of the party of the PRI, the union um, that I study is a union that was formed in 1973 by street vendors, which I think is a quite a, a, um, a unique 
way of organizing, right? Because this is a union of uh, folks in the formal economy, and uh, the these people, these vendors were independent of the PRI. They were never co-opted. They were never affiliated to the PRI or for or to any political party, for that matter. Um, why is this important? Because these kinds of unions really uh, challenge the state, right? Challenge the party um, by not being um, uh, by not agreeing with the party or with uh, authorities in Mexico. Right? So um, union independence really allows street vendors um, to have many opportunities, right? So, for example. Um, because they were independent, they were able to elect their own leaders. And the leaders, of course, um, represented the interest of their uh, rank-and-file members of the street vendors. And uh, people, women, could participate in union activities. They could be elected um, as leaders. Um, women and men right, uh, could dissent from authorities. Um, so this provided kind of an alternative of organizing, right? A, a more um, grassroots organizing that had nothing to do with the political party. And the, and the PRI could not use uh, these street vendors as pawns of the state. Sometimes the street vendors, especially in Mexico City, are used by the government, by the PRI, by the state. To, um, for political purposes, right? To occupy streets, to go to marches, to attend rallies, uh, official rallies, etc. Uh, whereas these folks in Puebla, uh, this particular union, the Unión Popular de Vendedores Ambulantes, um, uh, remained quite uh, independent. Um, now, of course, this independence also meant that uh, the state was always. Um, very uh, um, aggressive against them. And we can talk about that uh, in a little while. Thank you so much for, for laying that out for us. So maybe you could tell us uh, the particular story of how the, this independent union of the vendors came about. And if you could say something about the role of university students in that process, I think that would be very interesting for the listeners. Yes, so the Unión Popular de Vendedores Ambulantes, the uh, popular union of um, street vendors, which I'm going to refer as the UPVA, um, formed in 1973. And uh, the reason why these vendors began organizing um, so effectively was because street vendors had connections, very close connections, to very young university students. And when I say university students, I mean students who were part of the university system in Puebla, which included high school students. So we're talking about very, very young students um, that uh, were on the streets on a regular basis because the university was in downtown. Downtown, again, was very a popular um, area of town uh, with the university in downtown. And so there was this uh, constant uh, flow of students on the street. Um, the street vendors and the students actually had some commonalities, man. Um, that had to do with their class status. A lot of the students uh, during this period were working class, recent immigrants from rural areas. Uh, the university at that time, in the 1970s, did not have enough spaces for all these students. Right? There were no classrooms. Right? So, for example, some of the students that were connected to the street vendors uh, had to take classes in chemistry labs, right? The chemistry labs would be their classrooms, right? There would be no blackboards, no uh, seats where they could write. They would be used in these chemistry classrooms because the university didn't have the infrastructure to have all these new students. 
so these students actually began to also protest on the streets because they want the university to give them uh, classrooms to provide with professors, uh, with books, with a more uh, updated library. Huh? Um, so these these students right are kind of mingling with street vendors on the streets kind of naturally. Uh, at the same time, the street vendors are getting in touch with the students because they are selling them food, they are selling them wares. Uh, some of these folks are actually dating. Right? So I, I met students and vendors who you know, began dating at that time. Um, so uh, they, they, they began uh, making these connections. Now, the students that um, I I was able to talk with or former students um, were um, on the left. Right? They identify themselves as Maoists and um, they they saw in the street vendors kind of an opportunity for them to carry out their own political um, activities. Right? So um, the street vendors want to defend themselves from the fact that the police is constantly harassing them, constantly chasing them from the streets, like um, taking their merchandise away. And again, right, these are very poor people who are trying to make a living, who whose merchandise is the most precious things that they have. And uh, when they lose these things, well, there's there's no food for them uh, for that day or for subsequent days so the vendors seeing the students potential allies and that's how uh, they began organizing together uh, the students actually provide with uh, political tools uh, with the strategies of organizing and um, you know, that's that's how the union actually is formed um, in 1972 so um, in the book, uh, the theme of direct democracy comes up often, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit about what that means and how for the union, um, really uh, su- maybe surprising uh, strategies like theater and other forms of direct democracy, how that played um, into the practices of this union. Yes, one of the most fascinating aspects of researching this union was precisely what you mentioned, that uh, these connections with the students allow our street vendors to get ideas, um, innovative ideas of organizing. Right? So for example, at, at the time, in the early 1970s, the university in Puebla, the state university in Puebla, where these students came from, um, some uh, were hosting classes of Chicano theater, right? So the students are uh, being taught Chicano theater, uh, Luis Valdez uh, plays. Um, and uh, so this, this kind of theater is theater in which, you know, ordinary people play, um, make plays, theater plays that represent the struggles of the working class. Right? And uh, so there are all these workshops in which students are involved. And uh, some, some students um, tell the vendors, right, about this kind of theater. And the vendors who were very enthusiastic about it say, well, why don't we do our own theater uh, play? Uh, and then they began uh, forming their play and uh, creating their play, which they called Street Vendors. Vendedores Ambulantes, and uh, it was the same vendors who are acting, and they acted on the, on, on corners of streets, on on mark in markets, in in the schools, yeah, at stoplights, right? They, they play an act, um, and in in those in those plays, they basically uh, are expressing to a larger public the plights of vendors, right? specifically how police officers are taking away their merchandise and uh, also how some police officers are harassing women, Um, sexually harassing women. So it it, it was just fascinating to see 
how these um, rather unusual connections um, play out in uh, in the organizing and in the union activities. But again, right, I want to emphasize that the, the union was able to carry out these activities because of their independence from the PRI. Uh, another thing that uh, the street vendors did in collaboration with the university students was the making of the film. Uh, in 1973-1974, uh, the Teacher, well, professors of theater, very young professor of, uh, no, no, not of theater, I'm sorry, of film at the state university. Uh, he, he decided to kind of produce a documentary, a very short documentary, um, and asked the vendors if they wanted to kind of be on it. And, uh, and just through this film, express once more the problems that street vendors faced on the streets. Right? So the street vendors were very enthusiastic uh, and they began um, doing this project which uh, ended up being um, or the, the film itself actually ended up in uh, Germany winning the best prize one of the uh, winner of the um, of the prizes for best uh, short films. Uh, and th these were unexpected things, right? No vendors ever went to Germany or anything like that, but uh, just knowing that their production uh, had reached an international audience was tremendously amazing for the vendors. Now, um, sometimes when we think about the present and we think about social media, and we think about you know people video, uh, you know doing all sorts of videos, right? It's so easy right now. But for the 1970s, for the early 1970s, to do this and to reach an international audience was uh, an achievement, right? especially as these street vendors uh, were uh, people with no formal education, right? if at all they went to a few years of elementary school. They, they didn't have any formal education. Some of the vendors were illiterate, especially the women. Uh, so having these forms of communication um, were instrumental in, in the union and political activities. And so these various forms of resistance that you describe in the book, um, I guess the um, the result is that uh, they're met with repression uh, from the state at various levels. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about this and you know, also about the ways that you had to look for various sources to tell the whole story and fill the gaps left by archival materials. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to start uh, with the second part of your question. Uh, when I began the project... I never, never imagined that some of my primary sources would come from the um, documents coming from the uh, secret police in Mexico. Right? So, um, the documents that the administration of Vicente Fox declassified at the beginning of his um, tenure as president uh, and, and this document basically came from two agencies, right? One of them was the Dirección Federal um, de Seguridad, the Security Directorate. Um, and, and these sources, as I mentioned, had been uh, not available to the public or to researchers, or if they were very, very limited, of the, 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 the limitations were, were quite big. But anyway, since they open this document, um, historians have realized how many organizations, uh, political parties, individuals were actually um, spied on or the state kept, tra kept track of their activities. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I never, never thought that the street vendors that I was studying in Puebla, a group of uh, poor illiterate folks, 
would would have a file and several files, many many files in in this um, in this archive, right? In this was housed at the Archivo General de la Nación in Mexico City. So uh, it was just an eye-opening experience uh, just to get to these files. Um, um, hundreds and hundreds of pages that the state, the federal government actually had on these street vendors of Puebla and how the... Um, you know, the secret police, these informants basically trace the activities of the vendors, the political activities of the vendors, almost on a daily basis. And uh, following their leaders, um, much more so than the rank and file. Um, it was also very interesting to note that these documents uh, didn't talk too much about women, right? Even if I knew that women were some of the most active members of the union, uh, women actually uh, are not mentioned in these um, intelligence reports, right? And when women are referred into these documents, they are referred as the lover of uh, a leader, or, uh, you know, the, the wife of one leader, etc. Well, I knew from interviews and from other documents at the local level that these women were not the lovers or the wives. I mean, they could be, but that's beyond the point. Uh, the fact is that these women were organizing. They were very active, but yet the state was, or these informants, these particular informants, we're not paying too much attention to these women because, of course, these men, which I'm assuming were men who were um, spies, who were informants, um, didn't see women as, as political uh, actors. Right? Only, a few, only a few of them are mentioned, are ever mentioned. Um, but anyway, uh, the reason why I began looking at these records is because the, I knew from oral interviews and from, again, other local sources that um, vendors had faced a lot of repression. Right? Um, and one of the main themes in the book is that a street vendor also faced um, the violence that the state inflicted upon other folks that we know of, like peasants or industrial workers um, who were active politically in Mexico, right? So it's not only about uh, people in the formal economy or in uh, guerrilla movements um, who were infiltrated, right? People like street vendors were also infiltrated and, and they were also heavily, heavily repressed by the state. Um, and yes, as, I, as you mentioned when you were asking the question, there were many layers of repression and violence. Right? Um, for one, vendors were usually beaten by authorities, men, women, um, illegally detained, especially the leaders, uh, tortured, uh, disappear for a few days in which families didn't know where these folks um, were, their whereabouts. Um, uh, there was a case of a child who went missing um, and uh, most of the vendors that I interviewed claimed that it was the state police uh, or somebody in uh, at the government level that had not this kid because the parents were some of the main leaders of the organization of the union um, of course I, I was never able to find any uh, any evidence in the uh, intelligence reports uh, so there, there was a lot of violence against against these these vendors um, the main leader of the UPDA, uh, Sinitrio, was incarcerated several times for over a decade uh, uh, in Puebla and also ended up in federal security prisons. 
so you know it was very uh, interesting and of course very sad right to see that uh, people such as street vendors could also be as heavily repressed as they were and i wonder um you know in your in your fifth chapter you um you call that chapter from la victoria to walmart um and i wondered if you could sort of explain the story that that title refers to and connect that to the recent history of neoliberalism in mexico yeah so that chapter is one of my favorite chapters um it because um i began thinking um about the most recent changes um happening in recent mexican history um particularly mexico's turn towards neoliberalism i which started in the early 1980s um but i, I really wanted to see uh, to go beyond what we already know, which is, you know, the, the closing of state-led enterprises or the reduction of, of workers in certain areas of the economy. Um, one of the things that I wanted to investigate was how did neoliberalism play a role in the redefinition of public space? Yeah? Uh, and also, of course, the fight against unions during this period of time. So, um, in 1986-1985-1986, a group of businessmen, um, local authorities in Puebla, um, actually applied to the UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, for Puebla City's uh, downtown um, to become part of the World Heritage Site list. Uh, so the folks claimed that Puebla had colonial buildings, 19th century buildings uh, belonging to the Porfirian regime that had immense historical value, um, etc. And that, uh, well, that the UNESCO should you know, have Puebla as part of, of this World Heritage Site recognition. Um, in, in the application, which I was able to locate, um, the, these people, the city boosters, so to speak, uh, mentioned that they have already begun to clean the cities of Puebla, right? to uh, preserve, to... Um, rescue, right? That, that's the word that they use, to rescue the city center, right? And of course, what they mean by rescuing is by rescuing it from the working class, from the poor, right? From people like street vendors who are selling on the streets, who are using um, public spaces in downtown. Um, there was a very big market um, in the heart of the city, which was La Victoria Market, El Mercado de La Victoria. It was a, um, the, the market itself goes back to, to the colonial times, right? In the 19th century, it became a little bit more structured, and then during the Porfiriato, it became a market, like an enclosed market. Um, and it was one of the most important markets in the state right, where people from all over the place, from many parts of the state of Puebla, came to sell their wares. Uh, one anthropologist actually said it was like a, like a living museum, right? Uh, where you can find live animals, food, uh, fruits, vegetables, and whatever you wanted. Um, but of course, right, the people who shopped in this market, who sold in this market, were poor people or lower class people, working class people, maids, um, uh, you know, the lower classes, the popular classes, right? And uh, these people, together with the street vendors that actually sold their products outside the market, um, were in the words of these boosters, right, 
dirty in the streets, right? Their presence is chaotic. Their presence makes the city look bad and they need to rescue, you know, the, the, the beauty of the city, the beauty of the streets. Uh, actually, the market, La Victoria Market, these boosters are you, uh, was a, a monument, right, that belonged to the Porfiriato and that the market itself had to be rescued. So what the authorities did, the city authorities did, was to actually expel all the market vendors, right? Uh, these are stall owners who had been there for generations. They were actually kicked out of the market because the city government was going to re, um, um, well, not, re, uh, not rebuild, but um, to clean the market, to fix the uh, um, electrical uh, fixtures, to um, kind of remodel it. And uh, they, they actually mentioned that this, the marketeers could come back at the end of all these projects. All of this was never happened. Right? What happened is that um, the marketeers were expelled by the city authorities. Um, the local government actually leased for free uh, the market to... Um, to a big foundation in Puebla, private foundation in Puebla. Um, and uh, the market actually was remodeled by this private foundation and um, uh, it later became a shopping mall, right? a shopping mall that opened up again in the early 1990s. And uh, one of the, well, there, there were many stores, right? Uh, but two of them were particularly interesting for me. One of them was Suburbia, which is uh, a department store. And the other one was a restaurant called Vips. And many of you listeners probably recognize the name Vips because it's a chain of restaurants. That at that time belonged to Walmart, right? Walmart of Mexico. So that's why I named the chapter from La Victoria to Walmart because this space went from being community-oriented, working-class market, right, to a semi-private, private um, mall, shopping mall, that has uh, Walmart, right, or, or two uh, stores that belong to Walmart. And uh, for me, that was very uh, symbolic of the neoliberal turn, right, um, in which public spaces, stopping public spaces, and became privately owned um, spaces. Right? So today, um, what used to be that important market full of people, full of uh, um, products that came from the countryside, local products, local produce, food, etc., now has become a mall, a lower-end mall, because it's not a high-end mall, but a lower-end mall in which you find um, shops with Chinese-made products, um, beauty shops, um, restaurants like Beats that you can find in any, any part of Mexico. Yeah, so that's, that's how this chapter basically tell us a different aspect of what the neoliberal turn meant or has meant in Mexico, right? And a lot of these changes have come slowly, right? And, and sometimes people don't even notice them. Um, so that's, that's also an important aspect of the chapter. Yes, and we really get to see how neoliberalism plays out in a very specific space. And I think that helps um, make it less abstract as well. Um, so your book does not end there, though, after these stories about state repression first and then a story about displacement um, in these economic and political shifts at the end of the 20th century. But you actually show that this union, uh, the UPVA, has survived up until the present, I believe. So could you tell us a little bit about um, you know, how the union uh, changes and adapts 
um, following these these changes, these setbacks? Yeah, so um, 1986 uh, was um, an important year because market vendors are displaced uh, and together with them, street vendors are also displaced. Uh, they are kicked out from downtown areas and uh, they end up in the outskirts of the streets in newly built public markets that were very cheap, were very badly designed um, away from uh, the city center where people you were used to shop um, and sometimes not even public transportation reach these places right? so um, one of the um, one of my arguments is that these vendors these street vendors were displaced to these areas to not only because boosters want to wanted to clean the cities but also because authorities want to dismantle the union right the, the street vendor union which by um, the mid 1980s had about 10,000 members so city authorities i argue were worried about this union about the strength of the independent union so they thought, okay, if we separate these vendors, we send them throughout the market, uh, we make them market owners rather than street vendors, well, the union is going to disappear. And the union is going to be weakened. Uh, but that didn't happen. Right? The, the union was stable. The union leadership and the rank and file were able to survive. Um, a lot of the members actually ended up in one market uh, in the outskirts of the city, which by now it's not the outskirts anymore. Uh, and uh, they continue their activities. They have to refashion, reimagine, reconstruct uh, the union. And by doing so, they also open the union to taxi drivers, to um, other, other people, um, and, and also reach out to... Uh, neighborhoods to tenants in certain neighborhoods so the the union even if it lost members in the transition from downtown to these outskirts uh, these markets in the outskirts um, were able to actually incorporate um, other kinds of people so they continue selling um, although it was a, a very hard path of survival, but they, they continue to sell in, in these markets. They continue their organizing. Uh, the repression continues. Uh, a few years ago, for example, the daughter of one of the main leaders was killed by these men who entered the, the offices, the headquarters of the union, and shot the daughter of the main leader and killed her. Uh, so repression continues. Um, other forms of um, repression, I, I'm not quite sure how to call this, but uh, this particular market where the UPVA members uh, sell their products has been actually surrounded by supermarkets. Um, so they face competition. So I guess it's economic violence here that I'm talking about. Uh, in which now vendors have, or this union of vendors, have to not only worry about police or about authorities threatening now to close the market, but also trying to compete against Walmart, against these large chains of supermarkets that sometimes, you know, offer credit to people. Um, so, or just the simple competition of these supermarkets. Um, so that's kind of how the struggle continues. But one of the most fascinating aspects of the current situation of the union is that um, the membership and the union leaders use social media. Uh, so stories that we didn't know before are told in uh, on social media the political activities sometimes they stream live on facebook um they 
post photographs, documents, right? So in some way now, um, the union is, I don't know, willingly or unwillingly creating a, a different kind of archive, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much for walking us through your book. And before we conclude, I would love to hear, and I'm sure the listeners would as well, about what, what your current project is. What are you working on now? Yes, so I am working in a very, very different project. I am investigating um, uh, silver miners in central Mexico, uh, in Pachuca and Real del Monte. I, I just finished um, uh, a draft of an article about a 1985 a strike of miners in which all of these 3,500 Miners showed up naked to their workplaces uh, in 1985. And um, they were asking the company, which at that time was a state-led company, to provide for better equipment and uh, for uh, safety equipment and clothes to work in uh, these mines uh, in, in the state of Hidalgo. Uh, so this, this new project um, is, is going to explore Explore um, the um, not only the the struggles that miners had to go in in the at the workplace throughout the 20th century, but also I want to explore the cultural side of of these these miners. Uh, these two communities that I study um, now have. Are, are being challenged because the silver mining industry ended in the region. So they are reimagining the economy, restructuring the economy. And a lot of, in many cases, they are doing so through tourism. Right? So I'm currently writing about tourism and food. Uh, this region is famous about, for their pastes, which are the uh, Mexicanized version of the British pasties, right? So again, right, it's, it's how communities have to transition once more in the, in the neoliberal turn and move from uh, heavily industrialized labor to tourism and the service sector and uh, the food industry. Sounds like a great project. So that's, that's part of, of government. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to those articles. So just again, we've been speaking with Sandra Mendiola Garcia about her book, Street Democracy, Vendors, Violence, and Public Space in Late 20th Century Mexico. Sandra, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was really nice talking with you. 